The Invisible Population A depressingly accurate description for disabled people worldwide. Forgotten when creating infrastructure, researching social issues, and even building schools. College is meant to be a time many people look forward to, cherish during, and even reminisce about after. It's all about exploration and transformation, and during this time, academics isn't even the main priority for many. For many, it's first jobs, first relationships, or first homes. The official start to the rest of our lives. But disabled students like myself face barriers unknown to the general student population, to our professors and even the administration in charge of our two to four plus years of our lives from our academic curriculums to our literal environment. Have you ever considered what it would be like to navigate campus as someone with a physical disability? Pay attention to a long lecture as someone with ADHD or balance this new adult life as someone with chronic fatigue? This is Ambitious Vicious, and my name is Jen Reese. My pronouns are they, them, and I'm a chronically ill second-year student at Binghamton University, here to answer all those questions and more about the disabled student experience in higher education by sharing my own experience and inviting a new guest each week to share as well. I'm majoring in human development, minoring in education and theater, and I plan to pursue student affairs administration. Maybe also social work or education, but who knows. I'm going to finish introducing myself and my experience with disability, which will take the majority of today, because I feel like it's important for me to connect with you folks. And then I'll move on to describing this podcast, how it all came to be, and lastly, explaining the title's significance. So here's a little bit more about me. I'm the Vice President of the Disabled Student Union, and as an advocate, educator, and friend, I spend a good amount of my time engaged in conversation about the socioeconomic barriers and issues within institutions making disability within college a well-curated topic for us to talk about today. I never received any type of accommodations in high school or what have you, because I have what you call invisible illnesses. As I've aged, I've collected these ailments and diagnoses like Pokemon, fibromyalgia, PCOS, CPTSD, neurodivergency, and so much more. In working closer with services for students with disabilities, I get to see this conversation happen a lot from social, state, and national levels, and hear from all sorts of interesting people who clearly need to hear more from the perspective of a student. So here I am, because I clearly can't keep my mouth shut. Currently, I'm also the undergraduate representative for the technological accessibility team to hopefully bridge some gap between students and administration. Throughout high school, I also founded and directed a mental health initiative, which consisted of an educational website, local and national advocacy efforts and collaboration, as well as social opportunities to inspire personal growth. This past summer, I was an orientation advisor, and this position motivated me to learn more about the student experience overall. I received a promotion, luckily, and I'll be returning as a returning orientation advisor mentor, where I'm able to promote this podcast and its mission to all our campus offices, services, and resources for students to connect with. Listen, I love my school more than anything, and in a lot of ways, this environment has been the most supportive I've ever been in. But the bar is low for providing disabled people such as myself a good quality of life. Here is my new outlet to educate my community about my experiences, especially as an overachieving, busy, and subjectively successful student. As I mentioned earlier, each episode will have a new topic and a new co-host. In the series and in my life, I believe that we learn best from each other. Multiple perspectives are important for any story told, and I have so many wonderful disabled friends, colleagues, and mentors that deserve this platform to share their experiences too. We will cover a new topic each episode, share our related experience with disability, and as we talk, I will integrate research I've done beforehand throughout the conversation to comment or question on what was shared or to spark further curiosity and discussion. We will always wrap up by sharing final thoughts, advice, and sort of segue into the next week's topic, but Ambitious Vicious really is for anyone who feels like a fish out of water in the craziness of college, gasping for air with no way back to sea, for those who weren't offered the resources or support or representation, the truth, about navigating life in higher education as a student, as a leader, and as a person. 
Join me and my multi-talented guest as we uncover the ins and outs of disability in higher education by unpacking every topic from physical accessibility, disability services, academic accommodations, legal barriers, mental health, sex, relationships, professional development, community, belonging, and so, so much more. For example, I'd love to acknowledge the disability activist of our time and of our past. Our history is just so rich. But stuff like that is meant for its own full episode. So for today, let's just start with, what even inspired the series and why is it named something so seemingly unrelated? When I was younger, I was in both swim and dance, since I was like three years old. I genuinely always thought I was a mermaid because I was drawn to being in the water, but by the time I started competing in swim meets, I always wondered why I'd struggled more than the other athletes. Everything from the fact that I would refuse to do any running drills on the grass, to more frequent leg cramps, to not being able to stand for long periods of time, or how I need my inhaler after like every competition. Being a fatter kid, people just attribute this to me being out of shape, quote unquote, but I always knew there was something more. It took years. I had been around 10 at that point for doctors to even believe me and finally refer to me to specialist. I then saw a podiatrist who discovered slight deformities in my legs, feet, and hips, and from there, I still had more issues where this was not the source. They said I was too young to have arthritis or tendonitis and went on gaslighting me out of believing that there was something wrong with me. I started to not trust my own intuition, and though my symptoms had completely matched all of these things that I thought was wrong, people just thought I was like an 11-year-old hypochondriac. I reverted to using my mom's old ankle brace from when she had sprained her ankles a couple years ago, and it helped. Everyone thought I was faking, or being too dramatic, or doing it for attention, but believe me, I did not want any attention on my poor working body. Fast forward to now, I still feel like my body and myself are at odds, fighting against each other. As I'm still young and, well, ambitious, it was a really big struggle, and is a big struggle, to manage my own energy levels. I'm currently in the diagnostic process to see if I have some complex trauma disorder like CPTSD, but my fatigue, anxiety, insomnia, hypervigilance, attachment issues, depression, suicidality, and everything has been going on since I had the sense of myself. So, pretty young. But now I've come to realize amazing things since educating myself about disability. Like spoon theory. A common disability theory founded by Kristen Messerandino named because it uses the literal kitchen tool, a spoon, as an analogy to explain energy levels for those who may struggle with chronic health conditions or mental illness. The spoon theory infers that everyone starts a day with a certain number of spoons, and disabled folks start with a significantly lesser amount compared to able-bodied humans, and that task requires more spoons than average for them. The spoon theory has become an incredibly useful tool in my life to describe my own experience with chronic illness, and I use this analogy to explain my energy levels and quick fatigue to many friends and professors. I've always been one to get sick pretty easily, but technically I'm not immune to compromise. But just going through some of my ailments throughout the years, I've had chronic tonsillitis since I was like 12. I continue to avoid pneumonia every other year like the plague. In 2022, I got COVID and it really took me out. I mean months. And I had long COVID like no one's business. I had developed parosmia, which lasted about a month or two, which is a condition where everything smells like the worst thing you can possibly imagine. I mean, think like rotten meat marinated in sewer water, cooking by a landfill bad. Smell being intertwined with taste, I really struggled to eat any food for the entire summer, which was quite triggering as I did suffer with anorexia for many of my early teen years. The already existing fatigue worsened. Then I got to college and I got mono, which wasn't even diagnosed until like many months later, because doctors don't believe me. And many other people too, especially women, AFAB people, especially people of color, especially people with a track record of, it's not that bad. 
I had been in and out of urgent care and in the hospital, to and from my dorms back to campus, and my body was fighting the brunt of it all from October 2022 to March 2023, and I still struggle with extreme fatigue no matter how much I sleep, rest, or take breaks. And yes, I'm happy and not depressed. My spoons are just incredibly low. Also, autism runs in my family, and I probably couldn't count on my fingers and toes how many relatives I know with undiagnosed neurodivergence of some sorts, actual diagnosed autism, cognition and language dislays, d delays, ooh, that was a good example, <laughs> learning disabilities and whatever, and no one wants to talk about it. Everyone just says they're different, slower, special. Something I've struggled with, like learning that disability is not a dirty word, is this exact mindset I grew up with. My own mother with early, early dementia and Parkinson's would never be, like, caught calling herself and her forgetful, shaky ass disabled. I'm sorry, mom. I love and respect you, and I can't wait to come home soon. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Disability is not just something that was relevant in my own personal life, but all around me. Especially when I started to realize that I'm not making things up. That I'm not broken. That's when I really started to consider. Maybe I am disabled. I don't know why anyone would ever believe I'd be on the verge of failing my classes by my own volition, with my drive for academic validation and success. But hey, external factors are pretty convincing. Maybe I was never meant to be an athlete or a dancer. Maybe I am just overweight. Maybe I need to work out more, lose weight, change my diet, go on over-the-counter pills and supplements, eat more vegetables, meditate, sleep more, whatever. That's the kind of nonsense that's been drilled into my head. I believed that. I tried that. I've tried everything. Why am I failing math class when I'm at extra help every morning and every after school day? Why am I tired when I've slept for eight to ten hours? Ugh! This world makes you feel so dumb. Useless, even. And now that I've come to terms with, maybe this is just how I am. And that's more than okay. Because I'm not dumb and I'm not useless, and anyone with a similar experience deserves to hear that too. So here we are today. My own journey with disability is ongoing. As you've m probably noticed, I don't even give myself that title a lot of that time, but I feel like I've qualified in many other ways to talk about disability in any sense. Anyway, I quit swimming. I spent more time at the doctors, and I started an online platform discussing niche aspects of my life, mainly related to mental illness, because I wanted to find comfort and relatability. And my tag on mine was ambitious vicious. I mature to reflect on how swimming has made me realize a lot of my differences and capabilities compared to other kids my age. Then I got banned from TikTok for talking about eating disorder recovery. Whole thing. Anyway, what was also an early indicator was... My own journey with disability is ongoing. As you may have noticed if you're in my life or if I've done it so far on this podcast, I don't even give myself that title all the time. But I feel like I've qualified in many other ways to talk about disability in any sense. So, to wrap up the story, I quit swimming, and I spent more time at the doctors, and I started an online platform discussing niche aspects of my life, mainly relating to mental illness, because I wanted to find comfort and relatability, and my tag was Ambitious Vicious. So if you recognize me from there, hi everyone, I'm so happy that you're here today. I've matured to reflect on how swimming has made me realize a lot of my differences and capabilities compared to other kids my age, and I did a lot of that with you. Then I got banned from TikTok for talking about my eating disorder recovery, but that's a whole other story. Like swimming and many other moments in my life, the college transition was another huge moment for reflection. I've always been a very independent person. You know, I was that five-year-old who was told, and I quote, you're just wise beyond your years. You have an old soul. 
But even then, I knew now would be the time I'd be hit with some harsh truth about how my mother has really helped me throughout the years, which is true, but maybe I was just as incapable as society has deemed me to be. I love my mom, but we aren't even close like that. It's not about attachment, it's about the dynamics of our support for one another. I've been so appreciative of her, and I can only pray that she knows this. But before getting to college, I was anxiously anticipating this huge mountain to climb on my own before getting here, and a part of me believed that I'd never make it to the top. While some people worried about being far from their best friends or dogs or favorite coffee shops, I was literally worried about my quality of life declining. I didn't know how to navigate that. I'd have to structure my time a lot differently and do this and that, but I don't know what this and that is, which is fine. I had no idea what to expect when I got here. No one does. But with both my mom and I being sick for all of our life, we've taken care of each other for as long as I can remember. I'm a very overly motivated human, and my mother's approach to parenting has allowed me to focus on my goals, which I am so grateful for, because those goals took a lot of my time and energy, and that meant on the days I couldn't carry my laundry up the stairs, she would. That also meant on days where she couldn't go grocery shopping or just didn't feel like it, I would. At college, I can't just ask my roommate or one of the hundreds of other people I just met if they can help me fold my underwear. Though that's a more specific case, once I got here, I realized there's a lot more issues I'm going to run into. Like, acquiring meals is so goddamn difficult. As someone with chronic pain and fatigue, sometimes it's very difficult to get out of bed. And I don't mean to say that my mother catered to my beck and call back in middle school and high school. I just wouldn't worry about starving at all when I was home. I looked around and it seemed like I was the only one facing these issues. And looking back, it wasn't just my mother I was looking for. My friends back home were very accustomed to how to support me. I've known some of these people for over half my life at this point. So they never thought it was weird when I sat down any chance I got. Cancel plans with the explanation of, I'm just too tired. That was always sufficient for them. And long walks and distances were usually always considered. I get it. College can be isolating and overwhelming for anyone. Trust me, I know better than anyone, living through it myself, living through it now, and seeing many, many, if not each and every, first year, up close and personal, going through the same issues and helping them navigate it. But who was going to tell me about how to go through these extra stressors on my plate when I'm already worried about the baseline fact that I'm a completely new environment, new institution, I'm making new friends, and life as I knew it was completely flipped around. How do you tell your excited new classmates that you're not just suggesting a movie instead of a hike because you're really interested in the latest grossing films? Or how do you explore campus and familiarize yourself with the grounds when it's miles of hilly terrain? I just wanted to keep up with my enthusiasm, but I physically and mentally couldn't. And I still can't, but hey, I'm still here and going strong. I've learned a lot. Like, accommodations have saved me. Services for students with disabilities believing me was so validating. It was also a personal struggle to accept the fact that I was, in fact, struggling and needed assistance. Which I know sounds weird because I did open up saying my mom was a big help, but I guess disability has been something very personal and vulnerable to me. And it's not something I've come to terms with in my identity wholeheartedly until I got here. Many people with chronic illnesses and mental illnesses, including myself, always have this voice asking, am I struggling enough? And that word enough really gets to you. Not to spoil the ending, but later I got a handle on it, or at least I'd like to think so. And I'll share more specifics of what I think can be hilarious stories about these instances in later episodes. Maybe starting with how Mono almost made me fail my first semester, which was definitely a wake-up call to, yep, I should accept and utilize these resources I sought out, picked, and paid for. But now that I'm in a much better and secure place, I now spend a lot of my time ensuring that other students get the support they deserve. But once again, we'll get into all of that later. I just want to give you an idea of how humbling this experience can be. Anyway, what was also an early indicator 
that I was maybe just different was resonating with fish imagery a lot in my own childhood. I'm not talking about the whole, like, I wanted to be a mermaid thing and feeling a special connection to the water, but does anyone remember Rainbow Fish by Marcus Feister or something? It was a children's story about minority identity and inclusion. Or Out of My Mind by Sharon Draper. Its cover depicts a goldfish jumping out of a fishbowl, an image I wrote one of my first essays ever about in grade school. Why is there so much fish imagery and symbolism related to disability? Does anybody remember Rainbow Fish by Marcus Feister or something? It was a children's story about minority identity or inclusion. Or, oh my god, what I'm actually going to talk about today, Out of My Mind by Sharon Draper. Its cover depicted like a goldfish jumping out of a fishbowl. It was an image I wrote one of my first ever essays about in like grade school. Why is there so much fish imagery and symbolism related to disability? Well, according to Megan Brown, who wrote Swimming Against the Tide, Disability Represented Through Fish Symbolism in and on middle grade and young adult novels. There's a lot of famous fish phrases used in literature, such as big fish in a small pond, fish out of water, and not the only fish in the sea. This and other common phrases are used to teach a fable about minority individuals to young children, like also things like fish can't climb trees or swimming against the tide. She says that this is stating birth being an action of a fish can be very symbolic, thinking about how fish are born into a sea of millions, how they are incapable of living environments out of the water, but each have special skills and specific traits. And lastly, their swimming action can often be compared to the sink or swim debate. Let me read more excerpts from Brown because honestly, it's super interesting. She goes on to say, having a disability can seem like swimming against the tide. Ain't that the truth. When someone is different in any way, the public treatment of that individual can unfortunately create a literal perceived separation between that person and the perceived norm. Forcing any individual to feel ostracized or separated from the communal society, especially for the disability, can cause a lonely existence, and authors pull on these feelings when utilizing this idiom in their texts. You know, Out of My Mind was a prime example of this invasion. Brown describes it as a situation not affording privacy. Melody, the main character, is confined to a wheelchair because of her cerebral palsy and requires a lot of assistance with her living. But part of her character is that she's ridiculously smart and has a photographic memory. Many people throughout the book undermine her, and many people treat her like a zoo animal, where she is their only focus. Many people try to speak on her behalf, though she does her best to communicate her own desires in her own way, using, like, you know, word cards and AAC. But like Brown states, the dynamic of disability compels us to recognize that there will always be people among us who can't represent themselves and must be represented. So I guess the way we're doing that is fishes? Whatever it may be, I think ambitious fishes is a cute name. Representation is important to me, and everyone else, obviously, but specifically with disability, because as Brown has, you know, gone through, disability provides a special crippling amount of loneliness. And as depressing as that sounds, it's fucking true. The perseverance, private battles, and invisible struggles of disabled people and everything they go through makes us feel unseen, especially when the world is genuinely not made for us. If there is representation, the life of a disabled person is limited to the ideas of wheelchairs and maybe AAC devices for those who are nonverbal. The stereotypes and generalizations can even extend to those affected by disability, like overbearing or, on the other spectrum, uncaring caretakers. One of my friends that we will hear from later in the series, Kim, has been taking care of her sisters with Rubinson's Tybee's disease, which is a very rare chromosomal disorder which results in severe intellectual disability. She shared with me a lot about her experience. We'll dive into it during her episode, but let me share a bit now. She goes on to say, For most of my life, and still now, I have been a guardian to my sister along with my mother. My mother also has unfortunately chronic pain and health conditions. Here's Kim now to talk a little bit more about the perception and conversation around disability. 
we oftentimes we would go to the libraries when like I would take her to the library when I was younger and there were always like kids there and some kids would like get along amazingly well with my sister and then some would look at her like she was some sort of like strange creature like I'm saying kids but like I've seen I've seen kids do this I've seen adults do this and every time like somebody act like behaves so negatively towards my sister like both my mother and I were just we are beyond incensed we are so angry our like it feels like we're hurting for her because in in her own way my sister is like she's happy in her own world she's kind of above it all she doesn't really care about like what other people are doing or thinking but my my mom and I were still st- stuck here on earth dealing with like people who are letting their shame get in the way of like recognizing somebody's humanity and it is just so beyond frustrating that I can't even uh, talk about it sometimes. She goes on to share. One time I had to leave a month before the end of the semester to take care of my sister after taking my mother to the hospital with a perforated ulcer. I couldn't even return to pack my room until two weeks after the end of the semester. I love my sister and my family, and I've been blessed with such a loving family. It is a privilege to have them in my life, and they will always be a priority, but oftentimes the obligation I have to my family has gone the way of my obligations as a student. As a result, a lot of schoolwork went undone, a lot of weekends I was home, and a lot of desperate emails were sent to professors, and a lot of mental chaos dealing with the stress of college and the stress of trying to help your disabled family. As someone who's on the other end of that, I honestly feel a lot of shame about being ill. And you can ask my friends, I am not one to be embarrassed about most things. But I've only really felt comfortable with a handful of people in my life knowing about my medical history and ailments. It's definitely something I'm working on, obviously, with the creation of this podcast. But if you can tell 10-year-old me that I wasn't the only kid going through what I was, I could be a much more secure human now. I just want to be seen and heard. And I still do. For many, illness is not something to be prideful of. Historically, it's been something that's hidden. With physical illness, especially if you're using mobility aids or auxiliary devices, it's a lot harder to avoid that perception. You're told you're too young to walk with a cane, though, or to be losing your hearing, which is just ridiculous. And with invisible illness, you're invalidated for being sick at all. You're told that you just need to think more positively, that it's all in your head, that there's nothing to be sad or stressed about, especially when you're this young. But it's not just in children's and teens and adolescence too. Conversations about mental illness luckily have become a lot more prevalent throughout the years, but there's still a good amount of misrepresentation and silenced voices in these conversations. According to Mental Health America, 16.39% of youth, that's ages 12 to 17, reported suffering from at least one major depressive episode in 2023, which like has to be a lowball for sure. With the global unrest and general hostility of our times, especially post-pandemic, there's no way it isn't higher. During the pandemic was rough too, let me tell you. The CDC like had this study of adolescent behaviors and experiences. It's called the ABES. I don't know how people say that, but it found that 67% of high school students reported that schoolwork was more difficult during the pandemic. 55% experienced some emotional abuse at home. 11 experienced physical abuse and 24% reported that they didn't even have enough food to eat during the pandemic. All of which obviously has a detrimental effect on mental health. With that being said, It's time to be open, honest, authentic, and loud about our struggles. It's what bridges us together as a society. Humanity is about being connected together at all times, abled and disabled. In times, we are well-structured capitalist machines able to contribute to the most for our economy, or when we're just silly little guys who have no choice to rot in bed all day. So join me, as I rediscovered a lot of my unspoken moments in my past about disability, 
learn how I and you, well, we, are not alone. And you know what? I hope this podcast can bring you connection, reflection, and community. What's unique about being a chronically ill college student is I'm entering adulthood, but I also feel like an 80-year-old man. I worry about wrapping up my finals this week, finding a new housemate for next year when I move off campus, contributing to my believed political agendas locally and internationally, but also, I must heal my body, my inner child, and my demons. Everyone keeps saying, work hard, play hard, but if I work too much, then I'm too fatigued and I have no energy to play hard. How can I even make it to class if I'm confined to bed and I can't even get myself a meal? And you know what? No one warns you about the unique politics and structures of any institutions growing up, but sometimes, as an overly ambitious student, I forget that university is an institution like no other, especially being a state school in New York. To make change, there's so much bureaucracy. So not only is college wild as a student, but also someone interested in making a career out of this and disabled rights and advocacy and education. So for my second episode, I will kick it off strong by inviting Dr. John Zilvinskis, a disabled professor at Binghamton University's Program for Student Affairs Administration. I'm excited for the audience to have the opportunity to learn more about John and his work. Join us for a discussion on learning disabilities within college, overviewing stigmas, statistics, and lived experiences. Hear a little bit from him now. Hi, my name is Dr. John Zelvinskis, but students usually could just call me John or Dr. Z. And um, I am a disabled scholar. I work in the Student Affairs Administration Department in the CCPA College, the College of Community and Public Affairs. And um, uh, with my disabilities, I'm dyslexic and I have dyscalculia and I take medication for anxiety and mental health. And I also uh, study students with disabilities. And so I'm really excited to talk about my own journey uh, as a disabled scholar and talk about the ways in which I support students with disabilities. Thanks. Oh, I love John. He is such a beloved human in the world of disability because such empathy for his students and stake in their success. I'm excited for you all to meet him and my wonderful talent, amazing friends in episodes to come. I hope this episode has inspired you whether you are a disabled student, ally, able-bodied non-student who somehow stumbled all their way here and listened to the end, I'm just happy you're here. Remember, you were loved, precious, unique, and the world needs your goodness. So thank you so much for joining me today, Fishies. Until next time, stay ambitious.